Good morning and welcome to China Takes Over the World on RTHK Radio 3. I am Ying Ma. This is a new program that explores issues related to China's growing economic, political and military power. This morning, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Nicholas Lardy, a noted expert on the Chinese economy and a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, D.C. Nick, great to have you with us. Well, thank you for having me. We want to start by talking about uh, some of the new online online money market funds offered by China's internet giant. Uh, of course, the biggest of these funds, called Yuebao, uh, is backed by e-commerce giant Alibaba, and the fund pays an annual interest rate north of six percent, which is much more than what's been paid by traditional Chinese state banks. And the fund has already attracted over sixty million investors in less than a year. Uh, Nick, do you see these internet giants? Like Alibaba encroaching on the turf of traditional banks in the long run. Well, I don't think there's any question that uh, internet finance is uh, an increasingly uh, competitive factor uh, in the financial market in China. How large it will get to be, uh, how the regulators uh, might respond, how the banks might respond. Uh, you know, remains to be seen. But I think it is a new factor, and it's now significant enough in size that. Um, it is a, it's a competitive factor in the market. Well, we've already seen some pushback from China's traditional banks,、uh, such as those represented by the China Banking Association, and that association wants to impose new regulations on the popular new internet money market funds.、Um, how real do you think this threat is to funds like Yuebao? And do you think that perhaps the banks will just have to be forced to raise interest rates to compete in the long run? Well, you know, the background factor here is that the government has set a ceiling on deposit rates now for many, many years, which results in a negative real return to savers,、uh, even on a one-year deposit. And so, I think China's financial system, as economists would say, is highly repressed because of these kinds of interest rate controls. And you could say the internet finance is a kind of arbitrage. They're not covered by the same rules that the banks are, so they can offer higher rates, attract funds, and put pressure on the banks. Of course, as you say, the banks are responding by getting their association to lobby for restrictive、uh, regulations on the providers of these new kinds of、uh, deposit, you know, in effect, deposit accounts or money market accounts. That are being offered by Alibaba and some, you know, Tencent and some of the other、uh, Baidu, I think, and, and some of the other funds.、Um, I hope the outcome is that is that rates are in general deregulated. China has been saying for years that it is going to move towards market-oriented、uh, interest rates in the financial system. So I think the best thing that can happen from the point of view of savers, and I think also from the point of view of the system as a whole. Is for the bank regulator and the central bank to lift all the controls on interest rates and let them be market determined, and then Alibaba and the others can compete with the banks, and the banks can respond.、Uh, at the moment, the banks are highly constrained because、um, of the restrictions on deposit rates that they can offer. Do you see any new willingness from the current Chinese leadership to move? Forward with the liberalization of interest rates, especially in the aftermath of their major party conclave, the third plenum last、uh, last year. 
Well, the decision at the third plenum did talk specifically about market-oriented interest rate reform, and everybody knows that means deposit rates because rates on loans have been completely liberalized for a couple of years. So it's really a question of letting go um, of the rates. And it's been a hotly contested uh, policy for some time. The banks love the cheap source of funding that they have had now for quite a few years, and they don't want to give it up. But I think it would create a more competitive environment, uh, a more efficient allocation of capital if these interest rate controls were eliminated. So we'll we'll have to wait and see how it turns out. Uh, I think for the banks, the preferred outcome is they get to keep their cheap source of funding and they get new restrictions put on Internet finance. And I think that's a very much a second-best outcome, both from the point of view of Chinese households that save a large share of their income and from the point of view of the Chinese economy as a whole, because, quite frankly, capital has been significantly underpriced in recent years. Banks have cheap funding. A substantial portion of that cheap funding gets passed along to the borrowers. And one of the reasons that China's been investing so much in recent years is that the price of capital is too low. So if you want to change the growth model, as the leadership and and the party have been talking about, Um, one of the most important steps to take is to have uh, real lending rates at a significantly higher level than they have been. Well, the third plenum reform um, agenda issued by the Chinese Communist Party last November also pledged to open up the financial sector by various measures such as uh, allowing private capital to set up small and medium-sized banks, establishing a deposit insurance system to protect depositors, uh, granting permission for companies to go IPO without official approval. Do you like the sound of these reforms on paper, and do you think we will see them in reality? I think most of them are uh, would be positive if they were to be implemented. Uh, certainly, China has a very small uh, number of financial institutions that are private, uh, a couple of banks and some of the city commercial banks are basically private. But the state does have an extremely dominant role in the banking system, and I think it would be more efficient if they had more competition. You're not going to get it by allowing a few private banks to be created. They've said they might create three to five new private banks this year, but they'll start out very small. It would take them years to grow to be of a size that would be consequential. Uh, But it's a step in the right direction, and it sends a signal to the incumbent banks that there will be more competition in the future. And so, you know, they're on notice that uh, competition's coming and they should get ready for it, which would be a plus. Um, The IPO, uh, you know, IPOs had been suspended for 14 months, I think, in principle, going to a system in which access to the IPO market is uh, by this registration system, and which securities firms play a much greater role in selecting the best companies uh, to be listed on the stock exchange rather than uh, bureaucrats in the Chinese Securities Regulatory Commission. I think, in principle, that's a, that's a positive uh, step as well. We are speaking with Dr. Nicholas Lardy of the Peterson Institute of International Economics. What we've heard a lot recently about, recently about the risk that local debt poses to the overall Chinese economy, and China's National Audit Office did a tally last year and said that local government debt in China skyrocketed to about three trillion as of mid-year 2013. 
which is a 67% increase since the last audit at the end of 2010. Do you think that all of this out of control local debt is likely to bring down the rest of the Chinese economy, or how much risk do you think it poses to the rest of the economy? I don't think the local government debt uh, is anywhere near the risk that a lot of people are saying. Um, I, I think there are some serious problems uh, in the financing of infrastructure. Infrastructure should be financed with very long-term money, or from directly from the state budget or from provincial or local government budgets. It should not be financed with short-term bank credit. Many of the projects will not be completed, and the. They're going to be expected to repay the principal, which clearly does not make much economic sense. I think the good news, as far as I'm concerned, is that a lot of the money was very well invested.、Uh, China still has a significant need for infrastructure, transportation, water treatment, sewage facilities,、uh, more、uh, a bigger train network, and so forth. And I think the economic returns from those kinds of investments will be very high. The problem is that most of them don't generate very much cash.、Um, water systems in China mostly lose money because water is subsidized.、Uh, certainly, metro systems, subway systems、uh, in every Chinese city are losing money,、uh, just as they do in every other city in the world,、uh, except for Hong Kong. So, I but I still think those are valuable public services.、Um, The government has said they should provide more public services. Certainly, transportation is a public good.、Uh, everyone benefits when there's more capacity on the subway system.、Um, you know, it's less congestion on the roads, it's less air pollution, and so forth. And to encourage people, you know, there are some gains to that. And so maybe the fares should be subsidized, but they will have to come up with a, a different system for repaying the bank loans that were taken out to build subway systems because the fare box. Is never going to generate the cash to repay these loans. So I think at the end of the day, the loans will have to be repaid out of fiscal revenues of governments, whether it's the central government, provincial governments, or local governments. Do you think we're likely to see a local government in China default this year? No, I don't think so because I think、um, I think governments will have to step in and repay the loans.、Uh, China undertook this massive program of infrastructure investment on. Relatively short notice. They don't have a good municipal. They don't really have any municipal bond market. So they they financed it the quickest way they could, but it's not a viable long term strategy for financing infrastructure. But I don't think the money has been wasted. I think it has high returns in, in economic、uh, sense, but not in a cash flow sense in many cases. So if having a better subway system and more infrastructure leads to more Economic growth. That means companies and households will pay more taxes. Governments will have higher revenue, and some of that revenue should be allocated to retire the debt that was undertaken to build the infrastructure. Another threat to the Chinese economy that we've、um, heard about quite a bit recently is、uh, the shadow, shadow banking industry,、um, which is informal lending that charges higher interest rates than regular banks. And, and the National Audit Office also shows that local governments in China have increasingly resorted to this type of lending since 2010. And meanwhile, more investors have bought shadow banking wealth management products as well in an effort to secure. Higher interest rates than what's paid regularly by the state banks.、Um, how concerned should we be about the risks posed by、uh, shadow banking on the overall banking industry? 
Well, I think certainly there's more risk in shadow banking than there is in uh, traditional bank lending. It's less well-regulated. It's not always very transparent. And I think some of the investors in trust products or wealth management products uh, don't have an adequate basis for assessing the risk of the products that they're buying. They're just looking at the interest rate and picking the highest rate, and um, they're assuming that there's some kind of a guarantee. Uh, either the issuing financial institution or some government uh, will step in and repay if there's uh, any problem in the underlying investment. So I do think the lack of transparency, the lack of disclosure, the lack of investor education is a problem. And there are some technical problems as well. Many of the underlying projects that are being financed are fairly long-term, and a lot of the, uh, particularly the wealth management products, are very short-term. So there's this problem that we refer to as a maturity mismatch. As long as everything is going swimmingly and people roll these over, maybe there's no problem. But if uh, if some defaults occur, then then maybe many of the investors in these products wouldn't be willing to roll them over when they mature, and then there would be a wider spread uh, repayment problem. Um, you know, some of the wealth management products are guaranteed by banks and issued by banks. Others are off balance sheet and not guaranteed. It's uh, a quite a heterogeneous mix. But the key thing to come back to, again, is these products have arisen primarily because of interest rate controls. And if you liberalized interest rates, I think much of this activity over time would flow back into the banks and where it would be better regulated and where the risks would be less. So it seems to me the underlying uh, solution to this problem is... or. Uh, to this situation is to liberalize on deposit rates so banks can offer uh, higher returns through their normal deposit-taking uh, activity, and the shadow banking activity then I think would shrink quite dramatically and financial risks would be reduced. Well, we have been speaking with Dr. Nicholas Lardy of the Peterson Institute of International Economics. Dr. Lardy, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Good morning, and welcome back to China Takes Over the World on RTHK Radio 3. I am Ying Ma. In the 21st century, China looks like it could buy the world. Beijing owns over $3 trillion in foreign currency reserves, the largest in the world. And Chinese state-owned corporate behemoths span the globe, gobbling up assets and resources from Australia to Canada, from Southeast Asia to Latin America. What do the size, scope, and nature of Chinese foreign investments mean for the rest of the world? We talked to Derek Scissors, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, about these issues. Derek, hello and welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. You are the creator of a database called the China Global Investment Tracker, which tracks China's outward investment from 2005 to the present. The database tells us that China's overseas investment, excluding bonds, stood at $85 billion in 2013 and is likely to reach $100 billion annually by 2015. Uh, Derek, which countries have received the most amount of Chinese investment by your calculations? Uh, just Year, just last year, rather, at the end of 2013, the U.S. edged past Australia for the top position. 
It's a little bit misleading because Australia has been the leader for, for the entire period from 2005 up to now, and also because the American economy is so much bigger than the Australian economy. So as a percentage of the Australian economy, uh, Australia is far ahead. But the U.S. is first by a small ways over Australia. And what is the breakdown of um, the investments made by state-owned firms versus private firms? Uh, around, since 2005, so so not last year, but since 2005, it's about 91% by volume, not by number, but by dollar value or renminbi value, 91% of the investment by China made overseas is by state-owned enterprises, and only nine by non-state. Now, if you went back to 2006, it was all by state-owned enterprises. So we have now had uh, an increasing amount of non-state investment such as companies such as Lenovo, but state-owned enterprises still dominate. And what sectors do Chinese firms favor when they go out into the world? Energy, which is not a surprise. Uh, Oil is very expensive. Oil assets are very expensive, so there's a lot of money spent on oil to a lesser extent, gas and coal. Metals, also not a surprise. China needs a lot of iron ore as well as copper. There's an increasing amount of investment now um, in land, both in terms of property like buildings and attempts to acquire agricultural assets. And, and according to your database, energy accounts for by far the largest share of China's worldwide investments, and it totals at um, about $370 billion versus just $74 billion for real estate. So is there some truth to the perception that China's engaged in a resource grab when it goes overseas? Well, I, I mean, that's, I think that's true. Resource grab is probably not a very fair way of putting it. <laughs> um, China is a major importer of energy, and quite naturally, it seeks to buy energy overseas. Now, if, if people have a problem with individual deals, if they think China shouldn't be involved in Sudan, or this deal was made, it was, there was corruption in some way, okay, fine. But there's nothing wrong with China seeking overseas assets in energy, other countries that are major energy importers, the United States, Japan, many other countries, they all do the same thing. Speaking of the United States, so the U.S. received a record of more than $14 billion in Chinese investment in 2013, but you've noted uh, in your writings that the U.S. after Australia actually poses the most trouble for Chinese transactions. What are some of the reasons for these troubles? Well, the major problems are in technology. Um, so the U.S. blocks a lot of Chinese attempted technological investments in the United States and actually out of the United, outside of the United States as well. The U.S. just does not want to sell advanced technology to China for a variety of reasons. There's also a secondary problem, which is more China's fault, which is the idea of reciprocity. So politically, if I'm based in Washington, as a political matter in the United States, if, if the United States cannot enter the sector in China, such as the oil sector, American politicians don't want to allow Chinese investment in the American oil sector. So technology, which is an American decision, and then reciprocity, mutual openness, which is more a Chinese decision. Well, as we remember from um, from 2005, when a Chinese oil giant tried to buy a U.S. oil company, national security was was offered as an excuse um, or, or the reason for, for the derailment of that particular transaction. And, and since then, there's been an, a per- perception that national security is a hurdle that Chinese firms have a lot of trouble getting over. Uh, uh, Huawei uh, Technologies, for instance, is a firm that knows that 
that problem quite well. Do you think the United States is using national security as an excuse to practice protectionism against China? No, um, I don't think the UNICAL block was really about national security. It was really about the oil sector in China being closed. Uh, certainly, Huawei and other technology acquisitions have been blocked for national security reasons, and Huawei makes a tremendous amount of noise about this. Um, but especially that, in recent days, yes, they're just constantly complaining. Uh, <laughs> they're leaving the United States. They're coming back to the United States. Um, they're, they're, you know, if you just look at technology, the U.S. is closed to Chinese investment. I don't mean all technology, but I mean there's a pretty high chance that your investment's going to have a problem if it involves technology. But outside of technology, land, real estate, shale, all of these have seen successful large investments by Chinese firms in the U.S. But what about critical infrastructure? Uh, you know, it, not only. Was Sinook, uh, the Chinese oil giant, not able to buy a, an American oil company back in 2005? But we saw similar problems with Dubai Ports World. I believe that was 2006. Right.、Uh, you know, U.S. infrastructure decisions are very complicated in general because there's a balance between federal and local authority.、Uh, it, it looks like there's been a revamp of the U.S.、Uh, review, security review, since 2006.、Mm-hmm. I don't think you'd see a Dubai Ports World now. Uh, I don't mean to say that infrastructure investment is easy in the United States. It's not really easy for American private firms or the American government. There's a lot of ba- there are a lot of battles that go on, but that's not a China-specific problem. China does own shares in a number of U.S. power generation companies, so it is possible to make infrastructure investment. But like every other country, some sectors, for example, in agriculture and land, the U.S. is probably more open than the other country because we have so much land. In technology, we're closed to Chinese investors, and infrastructure is just a big pain in the neck for all concerned. <laughs> well, we are speaking with Dr. Derek Scissors, resident scholar of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington D.C. The、uh, China Global Investment Tracker also shows a split between the U.S. and the rest of the world when it comes to investment from state-owned Chinese firms. So, outside the U.S., state-owned. Firms from China account for ninety, approximately ninety-four percent of、uh, China's investment by value, but in the U.S. they account for only sixty-eight percent. Why does the U.S. appear to be more allergic to Chinese state-owned investments than other countries, and should it be? Yeah, let's be blunt about this. There are other countries who have concerns. After the big、uh, acquisition by, of Nexen by by Sinook, Canada passed some rules saying no more state-owned enterprises. Australia has had some some trouble with state-owned enterprise investment. The U.S. is most concerned about Chinese state-owned enterprises in particular because the U.S. there is a chance of a U.S.-China conflict.、Uh, no one wants this. It's not likely. It's it's it would be terrible. But we 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 talked about it for years with regard to Taiwan, and now unfortunately we have to talk about it with regard to a confrontation between Japan and China.、Um, so that is in the back of America's mind. I have Chinese executives who ask me, well. How come Britain can own these wind farms and we can't? It's a very silly question. Britain is a sworn, long-time ally. The United States and China isn't. So I think the message has been given that state-owned enterprises are only cautiously welcome here, and there are some significant problems. Whereas private Chinese enterprises are entirely welcome, and so you have a lot of private Chinese investment in the U.S., but you have some hesitancy on the on the part of the state firms. 
Well, critics often complain that China's state-owned firms distort the market and crowd out other competitors uh, because they have the Chinese state-owned firms have deep pockets, can tap into state coffers, and and often invest for strategic reasons dictated by their central government rather than for commercial purposes. Do you one? Do you think that's the case? And two, do you think the, that Chinese state firms are immune to the logic of the market, or would common practices such as overpaying for a transaction come to haunt them just as it would haunt a private firm? That's a great question. I, I think at home, obviously, Chinese state-owned enterprises behave in non-commercial fashion, and they continue to, to get away with it because competition is suppressed. That doesn't really work overseas. Uh, China has overpaid for a number of assets. Sinopec overpaid for some oil sands in Canada. Now it wants a partner because the, 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 the project is too expensive for Sinopec on its own. Of course, it can fund it. It just will lose money. So there is a natural check moving from China to overseas markets, the other thing in the American context, in particular, the U.S. is so big, it's not as if a Chinese company come here can come here and it's a small economy or a small market and China just takes over an element of the transportation market, for example. So I, I think rather than judge standard enterprises um, too harshly at the outset, you should watch their behavior. If it's a very large investment in a small market, that's a problem because standard enterprises will, obey, will uh, operate in anti-competitive fashion. But if it's a if it's a reasonable size investment in a big market, watch their behavior. Don't don't block on the basis of what they might do, and so that that's really a regulatory concern. Countries with strong regulation systems should should be more open to state-owned enterprises than than countries with weak ones. And and it sounds like you're also saying that large countries ought to. Um, or perhaps large countries perhaps have fewer reasons to be concerned than small countries where their markets could be distorted much more easily by a large state-owned enterprise. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that isn't necessarily the way the politics work. Sometimes small countries are very welcoming and large countries aren't. But the economics of this are fairly simple. If you have a huge economy, then a, even a big Chinese firm is just another firm. If you have a very small economy, that's not necessarily true, and you have to be more careful. Uh, what about Chinese investments in Africa? Obviously, they're very uh, chi- Chinese companies are very active there. We've heard lots of complaints in recent days about um, uh, about Chinese companies that operate in Africa and have stirred up resentment from the locals. Do um, do Chinese investments um, in Africa mirror their investments elsewhere in the world? Not really. Uh, I mean, first of all, the situation in Africa is very different, as you would expect. Those are a lot of small economies. A lot of them are less developed. What China does in Africa more than it does almost anywhere else is it engages in engineering and construction contracts. So they build roads. They build power plants. They build port facilities. They build airports. Um, and, And those can have a lot of value if they're chosen correctly to the local economies. It's not the Chinese participation that's in question here. It's whether these are real projects or they're political showpieces. So a lot of Chinese participation and involvement in the African economy, there's a lot of politics in this, because if you're building a dam and displacing people, and the dam doesn't really bring power to very many people, it's a bad project. It doesn't matter who's going to run it, it's a bad project. Um, So that's that's how the the Chinese involvement in sub-Saharan Africa is different. It's mostly engineering and construction. These are potentially very valuable, but sometimes uh, uh, the wrong project is chosen. Sure. Well, we have been speaking with Dr. Derek Scissors of the American Enterprise Institute. Derek, thank you very much. 
Thank you. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. Our episode next week will feature a conversation about the internationalization of the renminbi, China's currency.、Uh, we hope you will tune in then. 